Welcome to the Evolution Exchange Nordic Podcast. We're bringing together the best technical leaders from across the Nordics to discuss industry passions, challenges and ideas. I'm Charlotte Roberts and I help businesses thrive by connecting with top data freelance talent. And today, I'm your host. Hi everyone, this is Chris Bennett here, the Nordics Managing Director here at Evolution. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. Firstly, I'd like to say thank you to everyone for joining me today. Um, For me personally, it's my first in-person podcast, so thank you very much for meeting us in the Mentimeter office. Um, So thank you very much for that. And now we'll move on to the podcast. So the podcast uh, today is about um, data-driven product development. Um, and yeah, before we get into the actual nitty gritty of the podcast, we'd go around and do introductions. So if Martial, if you'd like to go first, that would be great. Uh, absolutely. And uh, welcome everybody to the Mentimeter office. Uh, that's uh, I'm very excited uh, to have you here as well. My name is Martial Gutierrez. I am the data and analytics engineering lead within the central data and analytics function at Mentimeter. I lead the data platform team where we have a data ecosystem of services that ingest, stores, transforms, and serves data to our different technical and business stakeholders. I work with a very talented team of data engineers, analytics engineers, and a data scientist. Hopefully, if you're hearing, I'm very proud of all of you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I also come from 14 years of experience in the telco industry, mainly as a data uh, analyst consultant for Cornable Technologies. Uh, and as a specialist in AI, machine learning, and data analytics with focus on mobile telephony services. Uh, my passions, uh, to, be, to keep it short, involve CrossFit, yoga, anything related to like fitness. I like hiking, especially at this time of the year in Sweden where the weather is absolutely amazing and thrilled to be here. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you as well. Um, Simon, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Thank you so much, Charlotte, and thank you, Marcel, for having us here. Uh, so I'm Simon Armstrong. Um, I'm a product manager. I've been that for 10 years. Um, I've been fortunate enough to work with several different products uh, in the, several different fields. Gaming, fintech, um, AI has been some of the fields and industries that I've worked with. Um, currently, I'm a senior product manager at Northvolt for their data team, um, collecting, I saw some figures here just the other day, hundreds of millions of data packages per hour from their factories. It's pretty cool. Um, So I enjoy doing that. Passions, I I love building cool products, um, making a change for our customers. And when you see that, this is is just what I needed. Mm -hmm. Those moments that I go, this is cool. This is why I do this. So yeah, thank you so much for having us here. Yeah, thanks for being here and thank you for that introduction. Felipe, last but certainly not least, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Thank you, Charles, and thank you, uh, Marcel, for having us in Mentimeter. 
Uh, I'm Felipe. I'm a product manager for the last six years, I think now, uh, working mostly in the e-commerce side and the fintech industry. Uh, right now, working Klarna as a product manager for the CS domain, uh, working mostly in the agent tooling, uh, so enabling the agents to have superpower and allow them to fix their customer problems whenever they, they have them. Um, and, and been working in, in the product side of the business for, for a while. My background is more related in business, um, but I've been thriving here in the in the software development uh, recently. Uh, and my passion, I think, is uh, I can share the hiking with Martial. Um, and also, I, I very enjoy nature and mountain biking um, and uh, all, everything that has to do in the outdoor. I'm, I'm kind of there. So mm-hmm. that's uh, a quick glance nice. of voice. And I absolutely do not blame you with the weather that we've had this week since I've been in Stockholm. It's beautiful. So get outdoors as much as possible, I can imagine. <laughs> Lovely. Well, yeah, so we'll go jump right into the questions now then. Um, so, Marcy, I will start with your question. So your question is, how would you explain in relatable terms what data-driven product development means to an actual product developer? So if you'd like to give a bit of background behind this question, and then I'll open it up to the group. Absolutely. Um, I think that this is a, a very relevant question uh, if we really want to kind of define to the audience what it means to actually have a like a culture of data-driven product development. And it is because it is a culture. In, in, in my opinion, it is something really like related to like an organizational culture. When something becomes an orga- a part of a culture, then everybody in the organization needs to play a role in that. So I think that uh, having the possibility to our developer audience to kind of explain what it means to actually be data-driven, uh, I think it would be very nice. And this question I want to uh, emphasize that was inspired by a conversation I had in my early days at Mentimeter with a product developer. So I was kind of in the in the middle of like getting to know a bunch of people, networking with as many pe- as many peeps as possible. I started discussing with different people in, in the area of uh, product development. And one of them, he he actually mentioned to me, I want to understand what it means. What, what does it mean to be data-driven? Like, I want to understand how to uh, create or, or, or start kind of acting in that way within the confines of my job. Mm-hmm. So if, if we are able to explain all of these things to every single person and how, what is their role, I think it's going to be wonderful, especially the product developers who are the ones who can build uh, uh, features and others into the product. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's the motivation right there. Nice. Simon, do you want to uh, I, can, I can start us off. I think um, I agree with you. It is a culture and it is, if you don't have it, it's hard to get it there. Uh, if you do have it, you're lucky. I think it's it's very valuable and it's an important part of culture. Look, when I, what I relate to and when I think of when it comes to data-driven, it's, for me, it's an analytical process. It's a, it's an ability within a company to in a structured and analytical way be able to make decisions um, there is a lot of people who have opinions um, and we listen to opinions there is something there's something valued with intuition but as a company to be able to make decisions on a uh, on an analytical way and in a structured way to get the decisions where you say here's how we reasoned and here are the reasons why we made this decision. And maybe even, and this might be just as important, what are the things that we have discarded because of our, uh, because the analysis that we have done? To me, that is, 
that is why you want to become data-driven um, so that you can make decisions in a structured way. Um, and then to make those decisions, you need data. That's that's how you feed how you feed those decisions and how you feed those processes within a within a company. Yeah, I think I have a heavy plus one in what you say, especially with the culture. Like you need to have it, and, and the culture extends for a lot of things. That when we think about being data driven, you need to be, and, and everyone in the organization needs to be very clear what you're trying to achieve. Like what's your destination? Because if you don't have your destination clear, like your why, like we can put it in the seven cynic terms, like if you don't have that very clear throughout the organization, then what are you actually me measuring? Are you measuring the right thing? Are we targeting the right things? That it can it can very uh, diversify in a lot of things. Um, and at the end of the day, I think I agree with something you mentioned as well, Simon. Like it it comes down to make better decisions and make those decisions more objective. Like you remove a lot of the noise or, oh, does someone more senior comes here and shout at something? But if you have data to back it up, if you have numbers, then it's not longer that whoever has the loudest voice. A lot of times can relate to this is actually the pain point that our customer has. This is the biggest gap that we have. Or this is the biggest market opportunity that we could be seeking. So you remove all that, hey, maybe I'm more senior or maybe, I don't know, the CEO of the company wants something. But you kind of draw everything that is not objective out of that discussion. And you can really put like the pinks and say, you know what, our data says this, and this is the numbers and can back it up. And if you don't have numbers to back up some decisions, you can create uh, a big problem for everyone. But, but definitely it has to do with culture and the team. Everyone needs to be aligned like, okay, we are going to rely on our data. Otherwise it's going to be like, well, who came up with this number? What is this other one? So it needs to be on a huge alignment. But it, the, the, the the best thing is that you improve the decision-making and you start focusing on something very important. Like when you measure something, I don't know if you guys have the same experience, but when you're committed with a KPI or with a metric, like it's so easy to focus on that one. So you can actually target all your efforts. And it's also a lot more easy to align um, con contributing other teams, aligning stakeholders, aligning everyone, because you can rally around some metric that you already have. Like, hey, we want to improve our, something out of the bloom, but I don't know, we want to improve our efficiency by 20%. Okay, it's very easy to align everyone under a number, but it's a lot harder when you try to do it with someone's opinion, you know? Yeah. Right. And so we, we definitely have a set of metrics that potentially we want to continue continuously measure, right? So that we understand what potential things that we have place in the roadmap, then obviously they get developed by the product developer if those are actually moving our metrics in the right direction. So maybe the, the developer as well uh, could actually be interesting. Let's say if we're going to introduce a completely new feature into the product, then it would be nice also for the developer to potentially develop the capabilities in the product to, to measure the, use, the usage of that feature. Like, are my users actually using this feature, right, for, it, for instance? And potentially also, uh, I mean, if we're going to start measuring these type of things, it's also kind of like the way that you design the data, I guess. I mean, all of, everything starts potentially from designing uh, how the data is going to look like, all of these things, and make sure that we expose the necessary info. I mean, maybe 
I don't know if maybe this could be a, a, a way uh, uh, that how you guys would uh, tell this to other developers. Is there anything else that maybe come uh, to your minds uh, in that regard? So um, I think having a culture within the company of how do you how do you analyze the information that you have? How do you um, build dashboards or how do you how do you how do you, how do you align the companies around different data points and, and characteristics and key results and things like that is, is very important. Yes. Having said that though, um, there are definitely some, some, some times where you know you need to step away from the data. Um, I've been in companies that are very heavily founder-led uh, on a vision on or on a, um, you know, they, they've seen something but they can't really touch it yet. They don't really know, they feel that there is an opportunity here. Those times it's very, very hard actually to base decisions on data. Being data driven then um, isn't um, isn't really the state that the company is in. They are a lot more founder based or vision based um, and vision driven. Um, so I also think um, being data driven or data inspired is, is something people use as well. It also depends on a little bit of what stage your company is in. Um, um, and um, and how that affects the ways of working and things like that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I I think you're totally right in in terms of when you don't have enough data, like how do you make decisions? So how do you move forward? Uh, but it also has to do maybe also addressing the the main question, like how do we tell someone what is to be data driven, or how or how can I live being data driven? It can be related also to demo what success looks like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You can maybe if you have a, a vision to be the number one in the market or something like that. Okay, what actually what translates in terms of measurement? Like what is gonna be the indicator in terms of number that is gonna say we made it or right. we didn't or we are so far behind right. or we need to change our strategy and pivot entirely because yeah. we are not re reaching it. Like right. it can. Very, it, it can be very handful to tell someone what what is going to take us to be successful. Like, when are we going to say we made it? And when we're going to say, like, we're so far away to making it. And it, it can be a very handy tool to demo everyone around and have everyone on board. Absolutely. Correlation between new features or changes in the product versus metrics that you are moving in the right direction. That's... That's pretty good. Like make sure that everybody sees that. I think that's that's good, especially if the developer feels that. Yeah. This was a feature that my team or myself actually uh, developed into the product. That would be super nice. Yeah, and and it's very handy when you, for example, try to bring someone new in the team. Hmm. Like it's very easy to explain them when you have metrics, when you have solid numbers. Like this is the impact that we are trying to seek here. Like this is what we want to achieve. When you have those numbers to back it up, it's for anyone joining is going to be, oh, we have a clear path of where we need to go. So it's very good for onboarding new team members. It's very good to keep engaged and engage high within the team. Maybe you're lagging me high. Maybe you are going somewhere personal and you are not like thriving in work. Maybe it can be like, oh, I need to remember why I'm doing it and having that vision and what is going to make us happening and how is how we're going to measure it and where we're going to achieve that goal. It's, it's very handy. I'm so happy you bring up the uh, what does success look like. So everyone knows that if you're on a football field, 
the way to win is to score more goals than the opponent. Exactly. It's very easy. Certainly. You know, you step, <laughs> you step on the pitch and you know it says, I have zero, they have two. All right, I need to do better. Everyone knows that on the pitch. Everyone knows the rules of the game. In a company, it's sometimes very, very hard. You know, what is the scoreboard that I'm actually fighting for? What is the the rules of engagement and how we play together and, you know, what maybe what our competitors are doing. But it's sometimes very, very hard to know that's what the scoreboard says just now. So I'm happy you bring up the what the success look like because it helps the team align on this is where we're going. Yes. It helps them uh, know which different roles we're playing in, in moving towards that. And they know when they scored. It's so important, both for motivation as well as uh, success in companies. But, it, it's the it's a bias between finite games and infinite games. Yeah. When you have infinite games, like you don't have rules. It's not clear who's going to win. You can have two competitors and they're both winning because yeah. they have totally different targets. Yeah. Yes. So for us to keep in track, like we can say, oh, this the competitor is going so good, but maybe I'm doing great in my own strategy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's very good to know what is what are you measuring, like yes, how you're going to think, hey, we made it. Like when you have that metric. And when you rally all the team around it, it's very handy. Uh, and, I, and I think that's one of the main reasons why you want to be data-driven. Or you don't want to be like higher, highest highest voice in the room driven. I don't know how to put the name to it. But but yeah, it, it is very handy. Nice. Well, we'll move on now um, to the next question. Uh, so this is Felipe's question. So how does the data affect the pri- uh, prioritization of the roadmap? What are we saying no to because of insufficient information or data points? So if you'd like to give a bit of background on the question. Yeah, totally. Um, since this is more related to product, uh, I think uh, I learned the hard way actually in my career that uh, the biggest uh, point of success for a product manager is to say, this is a, I'm prioritizing the biggest uh, impact that we can create. If you are not and you're doing something, I don't know, tech debt or something like that, maybe you are not creating as much impact that as you can. It's not that tech debt you don't need to pay it. Eventually you do, but maybe your team has more more important things to address. So uh, I think when you have clear structure in data, it's very easy to prioritize. Basically, you start saying, okay, this is the impact that we should be getting. This is the results that we should be seeking. And this is the effort behind building. A lot of times you have a lot of, I don't know, low-hanging fruits that can be fixed with with a small amount of effort and you can grab them immediately. Uh, and that can set up, for example, a product to enable something very big that is coming along. Um, but I always find that the thin, thin line for the product manager is to balance out between all the certainties that I have. Because if I have some features that can be improved in, I don't know, 5%, 10%, okay, I know it. And I know what the impact is going to create. I know the effort behind it. I'm quite sure. But sometimes, and I think, Simon, you mentioned it like um, some in a fast way, but it's very deep. When you don't have enough information and you don't have enough data, how do you prioritize? Mm-hmm. Are you never going to do those? Because maybe those ones that you're leaving in the bottom of the backlog can be the biggest change in your product. And if you, when you're creating a product, you want that product to be 10 times better than whatever else someone is using to afford like the cost of moving. So maybe that feature that you don't have enough data, you don't have enough 
knowledge about the effort that is behind. You know, you don't know the impact that might create. Uh, you're leaving it in the sideline and you're not putting it and you're not pushing for it because you don't have enough. So that thin line between actually prioritizing something you don't have enough data mm. um, versus the one that you have everything. I think it's a it's a very tricky and that's the craftsman of, mm. of a good product manager to to find it. Um, I don't know, maybe Simon, how you have you been doing it so far? So data and prioritization, um, I think when it comes to prioritization, I think we need to take a step back from that first because um, there is so many different things that play into how we prioritize things. And it it also depends on a little bit on how we both define success that you were talking about before, but also how we define value. Um, value can be different things at different times. Um, and I think, uh, so the question I ask myself when prioritizing is what are, what is it that we're trying to achieve here and how are we trying to do that? What is our strategy? And I've been in companies where there's never been a strategy document or there's been great strategy documents um, articulated. This is how we're doing it. This is how we're playing it. This is step one, step two, step three, et cetera. And, um, and even though it's not always written down, and there usually is a conversation within the company that says, this is how we want to do things. This is how we want to approach a problem. Now, once you have that, once you start to have an idea of this is the direction, this is what's important right now, then you can start to look at what data do I need in order to do this. I can give a few examples. So a few years ago, Volvo was doing a new car. They were doing the Drive E car. Um, the theme, the strategy for that car was because they realized that they were coming behind in fuel efficiency, the goal for that series of car was we want to reduce the how much fuel you use when, when driving this car. So the whole idea with that car was don't change it from the previous models in terms of what it looked like or anything like that. But if your initiative would have an effect on how fuel efficient the car is, then we'll consider it for prioritization. Um, and then they can start looking at, okay, is this an initiative that helps us towards better fuel efficiency? If the answer was no, then it's not even in our consideration for prioritization just now. If the answer is yes, then you can start looking at, okay, how much do we actually think it will help? Well, I might rest some simulations or I might you know, evaluate that in some way. Can I get some data on it and go, this is actually the highest return of investment for this car and how we prioritize this. So I think when it comes to prioritization, especially, and there are lots of techniques around it, we might touch upon that in a little while, but um, you have to you have to first think, in, what is it? What's the theme of what we're trying to do here? What is it that we're aiming to improve or do just now? And then you can start looking at what is the data that I need in order to make good decisions like that. There are more examples of things like that but Volvo was one that came to mind just now nice yeah I, to I totally agree with you uh, Simon I think it um, it has a lot to do with the fact of with, with the fact that you you need to connect as well uh, your priorities with like the company strategy right I think that it's a kind of borderline with what you're mentioning what is the company strategy what is the the wanted vision what is the product strategy as well what is that that actual vision and, and these things will definitely give you some sense of uh, understanding of where the priorities might lead on a high level, right? 
Uh, at the same time, of course, there's like the business uh, strategy or, or business critical aspects. Maybe you have uh, a bunch of customers or maybe one very critical customer that, you know, your whole business kind of like is very, is reliant on, on this like business that you have with this customer. And that maybe these things will definitely have a lot of uh, priority in the roadmap and they will have to be done no matter what, even if it, if maybe the effort might be high as well. And so it depends also like timing and other things. But on a, in a very, uh, I would say, simplistic manner, uh, depending on how much data we have. And the, uh, I think that those are the two things, that, that depending on how much data we have, uh, I think that everything should be placed in some sort of like a four-fielder, right? Where like, you know, effort, one, that's one of the axes, and uh, impact or gain, that's the other axis, right? So I think that it's kind of like a no-brainer that if you have a good belief that there is a high gain on certain features to have low effort, then definitely you can prioritize those, especially if those are also addressing the vision and the company strategy and product strategy, right? Then of course you can do, you can try to take other actions with other things, right? I mean, for instance, you have maybe something that has high effort and high gain. Well, they, they can also be prioritized. You can also compare with other things and see if you do it. Maybe something that has low effort and low impact. Well, let's see how all the priorities fall and still we and see if we still have development capacity to do them. And unfortunately, the things that are high effort and low priority, the action will be to wait. The, the logical action is wait. So I think that it's not saying no. I think it's more like saying not for now. Let's try to gather more information. Let's try to use all of the things we have, all of the information, let's put that on the table, company strategy, product strategy, the data we have, effort and everything, and make a prioritization accordingly. Uh, I actually remember, I have a story as well, when I was working um, at Ericsson, we actually had a, um, um, a feature uh, that we wanted to instrument, that, that provide us a, like a data product from, from our products, telephony systems, IP multimedia subsystems. So these are pretty much the the um, the the type of applications that provide tele uh, telephony systems in mobile networks uh, today, and we actually um, uh, wanted to provide a, a, an interface for real time, uh, let's say, user behavior and interactions with our product type of thing, like to, to just like uh, events around, like okay, how many people are making calls and stuff like that. Uh, and we actually there was a very clear indication that it was going to be a high effort from our engineering uh, teams. But at the same time, our product managers were saying, well, I mean, if we don't do this, then we're going to lose, a, a, let's say, value in our, in our product offering compared to other competitors. And we were actually being threatened by one of our competitors in one of very, very key a, a market that we have. So we anyway decided to do it despite of not having done this for the first time and having a lot of effort. And um, I mean, it, it was... It was pretty much developed. It, it actually was able to like help us not fall or not being, let's say, swapped by this other uh, pro um, um, vendor and the product that they were offering to that very key customer. And yeah, just to continue evolving that, we were also able to address other markets and everything. So I, I think, uh, yeah, it's, it also depends on many contexts uh, and, and many things that can happen in a certain context on, on how to make those decisions, I would say. I also think that it's, in a backlog and in opportunities, you know, it's a it's a fruit bowl. You have pears and apples and bananas, and it's sometimes very very hard to compare one item with another one and say, um, is this, you know, how do I compare this? Do I do do I do A or do I do B? Which one do I do? And um, 
when I think about prioritization and how I gather data around it, I actually use different different things for different items. So for example, um, the concept of a funnel that I talked about mm-hmm. earlier, my strategic goals, my operational goals, this is what I'm aiming for for the next three months. And then how do I get gather data about new capabilities or something like that? That is one aspect of it. But there are other aspects as well. So for example, how do I prioritize bugs or technical debt against a new capability. It's actually very, very hard. Um, for me, it's worked well to think of, of our capacity in our product team or in a product organization as different funnels or a different um, value streams, uh, things that has to go through. And then I can say, I know that I always need 30% of my capacity to handle technical debt or bugs because uh, I know if I don't, I'm going to pay for it later. Um, and then I can prioritize those in isolation, which which bugs are the most important, which is the technical debt just now that I really need to address or I'll lose in security or compliance or reliability or resilience or whatever it is. And what are the, the new capabilities that I need in my product, the new features to address a new market or... Uh, to plea, to support a customer uh, persona in a particular way. And then you can sort of within those different value streams, you can prioritize them within those. And that's a lot easier than saying everything is open for grabs just now. Yes. Yes. I, I just wanted to also make a, a, a parenthesis on, on tech that because it's a very, very interesting uh, discussion, especially because I'm, I'm more coming from like the engineering side of things yeah. um, in, in, in the room. I'm... I, I, I want to, I, I recently learned that it is actually very possible and you as product manager should definitely ask for that and, and be patient in the interactions as well to ask for what is the business value of tech debt. Yeah. Like, let's say for instance that uh, you have an engineering organization that will develop everything and then they, they will tell you, well, we're going we're gonna to dedicate 80% of our efforts on developing new features based on the four fielder that I just mentioned right now naively and everything. And maybe there's, there will be, I don't know, 20, 30% of extra effort on, on tech debt. Tech debt is really, I mean, simplistically speaking, a business value a bit further down the road, right? Because uh, when addressing tech debt, then things can actually happen faster. They, they can, uh, I mean, maybe you might be able to get out of a, a certain condition that doesn't allow you to create richer features faster, right? So it's technical debt really on the medium term kind of thing, potentially even longer term. So um, I think that um, I would definitely encourage you to ask uh, your engineering organization, okay, but let's say that you're going to dedicate this 20, this 20% effort on this. Okay, what is the business value? What, what are this, the different things that you want to do? What, what is the business value that I'm going to get in return and everything? And try to do those types of things until you actually get the answer. And debiting in the end will certainly have business value. And that's going to be much better to convey to even at your stakeholders accordingly, yeah. I think. Yeah, we, we have this conversation about technical debt a lot. And I, I think the, <laughs> the it, it's an exciting one to have with developers um, and people that build systems. Um, I am all for paying back technical debt. I, as you say, there is a value in, in uh, paying off that debt uh, in order to have, you know, a, a product that is less buggy or uh, has better performance or 
you know, can scale better. There are other times where I'll definitely say, I'm happy to take on technical debt because of releasing it right now gives me a chance to learn a lot faster. Um, so there is this balance of, uh, do I take on the technical debt? What is the price that I'm paying for that? Yes. And what is the gain? Uh, yes. If the gain and what I need at the moment is, I need to learn something quickly about a market or a feature or a value of something. Uh, if if I need to learn that quickly, I'm happy to take on technical debt. But there is a, there is a value in in paying off technical debt when certainly you know, before you scale a product or um, similar. Totally, yeah. Technical debt eventually, if you don't pay it, eventually you will have to, and that, in a very yeah. bad way. Oh yeah, and especially when you don't need to pay it, you, it's yeah. gonna come the due date. So yeah. it's definitely, and it's not only technical debt. Sometimes you have product debt, like you're you're releasing something yeah. because you want to make the time to market as short as possible. But you're you know you're leaving something there, like it's not perfect. Like mm-hmm. and the example that comes to my mind right now, it's what Google did with Bart recently. Like they want to release something as fast as possible. Yeah. to compete or to balance that with ChatGPT. But uh, now now with the latest Google I.O., we can see like, oh, maybe that's where they were targeting towards, or this is what they were visioning towards. But at the beginning, it was like, okay, you have here you have something you can ask questions, and that's pretty much it. But they did learn a lot during that process. Yeah. Like, okay, if we don't have catastrophic answers or we don't um, have a very problematic product, in the release, okay, now we can move forward with this uh, model language or things like that. I think it, it's very yeah. relatable to sometimes improve time to market, price uh, some tech debt, or but eventually you will need to pay it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that this even deserves another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Only tech debt. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, but also tech debt isn't always tech debt when it's released. So, um, it might have been exactly this the right thing to build as it was built when you release it. But then things changes or you learn things that goes, actually, if, if we do it again, we would do it differently. So we have to adjust or we have to pivot or, um, you know, we, we were actually not solving the problem that the customers had. We thought we did, but we're actually not solving the real problem here. So technical debt might not have been technical debt when you released the product. Yeah. But it pivoted. Fortunately, I have a very good example for that one. And... In a previous role, uh, we launched uh, an underage uh, bank account. Um, it was one of the first ones in the market. Um, and when we were shaping up and we were trying to make form of this product, the biggest challenge for us was how we we're going to do the KYC because we needed the parents to sign up. And they were saying, okay, my consent, consent, thank you for the word. Uh, I'm going to consent for my kid to have uh, a bank account. And this is a 100% digital experience. There was nothing physical. So um, we enabled a very lovely path on board. But uh, when we translated actually to the product, it was very weird, the path, because the kid makes the application and then it needs to go to the parents. Either one of them can consent, but they need to do it within the app. And if they don't have the app, they need to download the app, validate themselves, verify themselves, perform every KYC aspect of it. Then they will be able to do it. And the kid then will be good to go and open the bank account. And it was very tricky at the beginning. But we launched it. uh, We were fully confident that we have made it in the right way. 
But yeah, eventually it become like, oh, it, this journey is not as smooth as possible. It's not as convenient or it's not in the best scenario possible. So that's uh, that was a hard lesson. But um, fortunately, a lot of kids now has like help it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did learn the hard way as well on, on how to release those situations because it was the first time that we released something that was going to go for a journey outside the app. Everything else was within it. So it was it was a learning experience for, for all of us to how to do it. Nice. Nice. And we'll move on now to the last question. Um, so Simon, this is your question. Uh, so what is your favorite tool for insight creation and when do you think it works particularly well? Mm. Let's give a bit of background. I'll elaborate on that one. Yes. So um, being data-driven um, to me is a lot about actually being insight-driven. So we use data to create insights. And there are so many decisions that we make as product managers in companies. Um, the world around us is changing and we need to make decisions, strategic one, operational one, tactical ones. And in order to do that, we need insights. So to me, it's, you know, there, there are multiple tools and this is the question to you guys in what sort of tools for insights do you use and find particularly helpful? Um, and you need to explain their context as well because a market analysis might be different from a customer journey, uh, which is different from a prioritization discussion, et cetera. But um, I'll just hear what, what tools have you worked with uh, what methodologies have you worked with in order to create insights uh, to make your decisions? Perfect. I think you're spot on with one photo of like, what is the question that needs answering? Yeah. Because if you're looking for market opportunities, it's going to be vastly different than if you are looking for maybe a tool on how to improve an internal product you might be working on. Um, uh, and also, like, what's the who's the customer? What's the budget? Sometimes, yeah, you need to buy an entire tool for doing something. It is worth it. Uh, yes. um, today, I was reading about uh, an experiment that Google did once that they tested 127 different shades of blue. Wow. Like, do we really need to go into that that <laughs> on on data? Like, it's it's not necessary sometimes. But um, I think the in terms of tooling, uh, I wouldn't underestimate the one that you have more handy to your old self. Like sometimes if you're an expert in Excel and Google spreadsheets, go for it. Maybe you there, there if you drive there, that should be good to go. Like a lot of companies has uh, so in, done amazingly there. But in the example of Google in 127, 127 shades of blue, yeah. that's a... That's a big experiment. There's <laughs> <laughs> experiments running. <laughs> yeah. Do you know? Do you know how Google was that some kind of A/B testing or? It was an A/B testing. Oh wow! The conversion of uh, a click to action. Yeah. Well, so they uh, have a manpower to manpower to the system and the money. Yeah. And my question there is like, really, do you really need you know, 127 different ones? And maybe you can narrow it down. Okay. Yes. But yeah, uh, in terms of tooling, uh, maybe addressing that bit, um, mm. I've, I've always been a very good fan of A-B testing uh, and every tool that can help you a little bit more in terms of what can you change, what can you vary, what can you adapt 
um, a lot of times, uh, this is a discussion I always have with the UX designers. It's like you build something and you you are certain, and you see in Figma, this is the way everyone would use it. As soon as a user has it, it turns the page around, they look the other side, they don't see the buttons, they don't read the text, they don't understand the icon. It's totally different. So you need to plan for the worst. Uh, and yeah, toolings like to verify what are they clicking on, uh, maybe hot yard or things like that can be very, very handy to get a better insight. And how to transform data to information, yeah. it's it's key. Yeah. Yeah. testing, I, I definitely think it's such a such a wonderful tool to to get uh, insights and understand if something is working or not. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely amazing. Um, I've been thinking that I mean this is definitely something that we don't normally use in the telco industry. Like we don't we don't have the the luxury to to do uh, too much A/B testing, but definitely happens a lot in the in, in SaaS. I mean, yeah. Mentimeter we do a lot of A/B testing as well. I mean, I think it we have been able to uncover wonderful uh, things in our product thanks to to A/B testing. But anyway, coming first with your with your question, I think. I think the first thing that, that we need to put on the table is well, what's your product maturity, right? Well, where, which stage are you uh, when it comes to to your product, to your the life cycle of your product? Are you are you maybe at the early stages where this is just an idea, or maybe are you kind of like trying to set a like a, a footing in a market and trying to kind of like discover your niche or something? And I think that there are different tools for 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 different cases, right? Like marketing analysis could be like maybe in personas could actually be something that you would do at the beginning to understand if your product can actually address a specific needs of different personas, right? Um, if your product is maybe uh, a little bit, okay, I have some demos and everything, maybe you can do some user interviews and kind of show them the product. What do you think about this? What do you think about the user experience? Is it, do you, do you think this is actually something that would be beneficial for you? These type of interviews would be nice, even at any stage, to be honest. But I think that early stages, that would be a very nice way to uh, capture uh, initial feeling uh, of users. Um, eventually down the road, potentially usability testing, you can also use at, the, at different points in time to understand if different features are definitely creating the behaviors that you were expecting in the users to create or, or just like see how the user is just using the feature. I think uh, maybe you are expecting a certain behavior, but maybe the usage is different. It can be good, it can be bad. I mean, it depends on what the, what the instrument in this case actually uh, yields. A-B testing, obviously. I think that A-B testing, the thing with A-B testing is that, that, is a, that you need to be a little bit more mature when you come to A-B testing because when you when you when you think about A/B testing, and now I'm kind of kind of coming a little bit with like my where I'm coming from with the leading a, a, a data analytics engineering team, uh, it's it's all about uh, how you instrument your product to produce data because that's the data that you want to collect, and at the same time how you collect it, how you store it, how you transform it, how you how you make sure that you actually connect all of this data into your A/B system, uh, A/B testing system to make sure that you get the, the insights. Um, and you get, you need to have users, you need to have a lot of product usage, you need to have a properly instrumented product. You need to make sure that the data design in the product is correct. With the correct, with the correct data design in the product, then you can create metrics or you can, let's say, derive the metrics, and then you can validate on your different versions or variants of the product that you are, let's say, 
testing at a certain point in time based on a hypothesis, then you can validate if the metrics, certain metrics that you believe are going to move are actually moving in the right direction or not. So it all depends on the maturity. It all depends on uh, what you're able to do. And different tools can be used in uh, at different points in time, I would say. Yeah, and I think that's, that's, the, that's the hard part, you know, figuring out which tool or methodology do I actually need to use to get the right input so that I can make this decision. Right. It's a very, it's a difficult one because, you know, if you if you search on the internet by a particular tool, everyone says, oh, it's the best, I can do this, and it's amazing. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and then you try to apply that into your own product and you go, I can't do A-B testing or it's too... I don't have users. <laughs> How can I do A-B testing or the problem is on you? Yeah, for example. Right. And I mean, take another example. You mentioned personas. Um, I think personas can be very, very helpful in many contexts. Yes. Um, marketing, for example, I think personas can work really, really well. To understand my stakeholders, yes, I use personas for that. Um, to build a particular feature in my product, I find it hard. So how do I actually use a persona like that? I can think of models like jobs to be done. That might be a better uh, methodology yes. for insights if I'm actually thinking what should I do, is this a good feature or not, does it actually solve a customer problem so it very much depends on what am I trying to make a decision about um, and then from that thinking through okay, if, if that's a decision I want to make, then how do I investigate that and that's this is coming back to your original question I think it's an analytical process of here's the decision I want to make here is the tools that I that I know of how to use that can help me make that decision. Yes. And then start to gather data into into a particular methodology to to make that decision. Certainly. Totally. Definitely. Yeah. You always start with a hypothesis and see which to or maybe use a combination of tools, right? You know, that's that can be very that's very interesting. Mention I, I, I mentioned I forgot to mention that maybe you I mean analytics in general I mean if you have a lot of data I mean in our case for instance we have data we have data scientists we have a bunch of people that can use the data analyze find patterns maybe those things can can also be helpful to uncover in uh, kind of like interesting insights based on a on a hypothesis maybe you have a, a problem with like I don't know uh, registration conversion it depends on the type of SaaS that you're, yeah. you're working on in them. Use that predictive analytics as well to see maybe in the future, maybe at this point in time, you could maybe try to yeah. create a feature or something into the product, and it might actually be the the thing that will definitely you will definitely like maximize the impact at that point in time based on what the prediction is telling you as well. That's yeah, definitely. Nice. Before we end the podcast, I'd like to say thank you so much to all of our guests for sharing their thoughts in today's conversation. If you are hiring for a new technical role or looking for new roles, feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. Or if you or anyone you know would like to be featured on a future podcast, you can drop me a message too. I'm Charlotte Roberts and you can find me on LinkedIn or email me at charlotte.roberts at evolution-nordics.com or visit us at evolutionjobs.com forward slash essay. Thanks again to all our guests and thank you for listening. We hope you can join us next time.